groups, out groups, and rights really what you need for cohesive societies is people to be able to seek out what they've got in common, where are the common overlaps, and then work with them rather than where are the divisions and try and convince people the rightness of the, your view on those divisions. So that's simply without getting too far into stuff, that'd be that's one of the things. But at a broader, more and this is quite profound, but at a more broader level. We went to this Welcome to the Jess Larson Show, where I interview innovators, leaders, and uncommonly high achievers. Today is part two of our episode with Steve Killalay. If you missed part one, please go back and learn how we built a $500 million tech company and then took a second tech company public. And his charitable work has now helped over 3.6 million people. Steve, where we were left off on part one, we were talking a little bit about, a little bit about the concept of the white space. And for entrepreneurs or nonprofit leaders, how identifying the white space and moving there could be an advantage. Can you expound on that concept a little bit? Sure. I guess it's an analogy to say uh, yeah, and look at the areas emerging or underutilized. So once uh, look at a space and there's a lot of activity in it, and that can be the point where, let's say, a gardener or someone like that picks up on it and starts to cover it and report on it. So quite a, there'll be a lot of the players already in there who were emerging players four or five, even a decade a year prior moving into it. So what's really important is to be able to get an idea, get yourself an idea. And if there isn't other people working in that space or very, very little, then they're likely to be quite fruitful, particularly if you can see it as an emerging area, something which is emerging. Is an emergent quality within society. So look, that's what I mean by the white space. And if there's, if you're moving into a space which is really crowded, unless you've got an awful lot of money, or you've got something which is really, really brilliant, it's a, it's very, very, very hard. A lot of people think, well, there's a, there's, there, there's a hundred billion dollar market. If I can carve out half a percent of it, gee, I'm going to do really well. But it doesn't work that way. You end up with two or three people dominating the market and everyone else struggling to pay the wages bill. So, But if you can find those kind of spaces, that's great. And there's all sorts of areas of emerging tech, areas of technology to date. Quite often, just finding a small niche. If the niche is big enough, you make enough money. That's really how I started out this in, System software on the non-stop computers. And I just came up with a, a concept for a, uh, monitoring the operating system in real time. And it's a niche market, but it was enough to get me going. And, and who's the buyer of that? Who was your ideal customer at the time? Oh, okay. <laughs> so the ideal customers, some of the early customers on the first one were People like New York, London, Hong Kong stock exchanges, major international switches for Visa and American MasterCard and the major point of sale ATM networks in the world. Because the, what the area I picked was the highest availability computer systems in the world at the time, other than defence. Okay, because I didn't want to do defence, and yeah, and so they were the ones with the most urgent need to get the problems fixed or isolate and fix problems in real time. Because they needed to make sure it was available to run all those functions. 
can remember one time, okay, it's first time to New York, okay, so think of this guy from Sydney, gets up to the wall and gets there and just sees it's this hollow cannon, cannon, canyon of the uh, buildings. And so the, that was before they, they moved out to the suburbs, but that's where the, the, the IT department for the New York Stock Exchange was. And so I've gone into this meeting, they've got about 30 of these uh, $20 million systems or something at the time. And so I go in, I meet with the uh, head of it and he's, uh, it's about 9.30 in the morning. He's got a T-shirt on, blue jeans, and I go, oh, in those days people used to actually dress up in suits and sort of uh, go in and uh, go, oh, you casual? He goes, yeah, I've been working all night with that outages. And so, bang, two months later they bought the software. Right, you know, right place at the right time. Yeah. When you think about at the time, I mean, the problem with white space is if, if you've recognized it, but not everyone else has, you know, statistically, you're unlikely to be talking to a thought leader or to be talking to a, an early adopter, right? When you just go out and start telling people about it. So when you think about strategies of finding those early adopters, what did that look like for you? How did you do that? Well, it's the same for building the Institute for Economics and Peace. You go out and you just proselytize what you're doing. You can go, go to different places where you're more likely. If you can meet early adopters, they'll know other early adopters because we all tend to hang with the people we're most similar to, get the introductions out from that. But a lot of the time, it's just hard work. And so one of the things, that, particularly with young people today, one of, one of the things that just don't ever underestimate hard work. Okay. So my life, I've been working 60 to 80 hours a week. Okay, and I've been at it for 50 years. No, maybe not that long, 45 years. And the crazy thing about that is I feel like I've got a balanced life. So I've got a big family. I've got four kids, 12 grandkids. So I've got close, good relationships with them. I play my golf. I do a lot of meditation. I spent most of my life surfing. And I've got a, a good relationship with my wife. So... All those, all those things you can have with hard work just means you may not vegetate out as long on the lounge uh, and may, yeah, may, may not be as many long lunches. But never underestimate hard work and just the ability to go out and uh, proselytise what you're doing. I used to get on it. I was building, a, let's say, uh, tech companies. I used to get, because it was all global, I'd get on a plane, I'd go travel overseas for three to five weeks, I'd do a new city every two days, and I'd sometimes move through two to, th and I would move through two to three continents on a trip. That was the, that was the pace I moved at. Wow. Um, P.S., I, I really like Sydney. I, I accidentally got stuck there during a Qantas uh, strike. I, I'd gone out to Perth, Australia, my, my business partner, Lindsay, had produced a concert called the End of Polio Concert that raised $118 million to, to combat polio with, from Bill Gates and the Australian government and these people. And so I brought my surfboard so I could go try out Margaret's River and some of that on the other side of the, the continent. And then on my connection in Sydney, Qantas went on strike. So I got three days in Sydney. I got to go surf Bondi Beach and some of that. And I'm a fan of, I'm a fan of where you're from. Wow. Too bad we didn't know each other then because... I've got two houses. One of them's a spare house. We just put the uh, friends and family up in at various times. 
and walk out the back door on one of the best surfing beaches in Sydney. It's called Newport Beach, and it's got a reef out in the front of it. It'll hold literally any any size waves. So you can get waves up to twenty foot out there, which right, the wind's right, it's rideable. I spent I gulled myself a, a, a minimum of the five hours in the a week in the water surfing. And if you're a surfer, that's quite a bit of surfing. That's the minimum. And so I'd get up in the morning, and then I'd uh, look at the surf, and then I'd either, in those days it was before the internet, so I'd phone the US office and uh, yeah, yeah, do an hour, hour and a half on it, depending on the tide conditions, then go surfing. I'd get up, and the surf's on, and the tide's right, I'd go surfing, then phone the US office before going in. So that was part of my daily routine. My wife used to, with sort of middle of winter, I'd be up at, let's say, uh, you know, six o'clock, and it'd be first light, and I'd go swimming, and it'd be freezing, and I'd uh, come back into bed, jump into bed, and my wife would say, get out, you're so cold. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's funny, uh, a lot of people, like younger people, ask me, you know, how did I get into mergers and acquisitions at Citigroup? And at the time, I was, you know, I was in mid-market, and they were the number one mid-market M&A firm in the world. And everybody assumed I came down from Canada to, to Irvine so that I could do that job. <laughs> That's not at all what happened. I was a snowboarder and my wife was a Californian and didn't want to live where it was cold. So I figured if we're not snowboarding, we're surfing. And I had heard Huntington Beach had the most consistent waves on the West Coast. So sight unseen, we, we rent a studio apartment as newlywed 22-year-olds. 21-year-olds and moved to Huntington Beach so I could surf every morning before work, even though I didn't have a job. So for the first two weeks, we ate like dollar pies and dollar hamburgers until I could get a sales job. And eventually I got recruited over to Citigroup, but I was there for the surfing first and the finance second. Gee, that's a, Jess, that's a great story because I think, how can I put it? A, one of the key things from the, of what I see is life has a flow to it. My life's been pretty much a bunch of just following the flow rather than being a concert. There's been some really, really planned out execution strategy for life. So it has its flow to it. And opportunities, and this is true for business too, opportunities open up. And like when the window of opportunity opens up, you've got to jump through it. Otherwise, it will close. And sort of the best entrepreneurial story is you start with an idea of where you want to go, but your first day you're already off adjusting because reality changes around you. And my life's pretty much the same. Like I got to, I've been surfing all around the world, got to 25 and thought, well, I've got to do something constructive with my life now. And I thought, well, what I'd like to do is three things came up. And so the first one was to take people on adventure trips around the world. But I thought, oh, that'll stop at 35 because I'll be too old to do it. But in retrospect, I just would have created a company around it. The second was to be a social worker. because I've always had some qualities of uh, empathy for the, uh, yeah, for the less, the, uh, less fortunate in life. And the other one, which is just purely intuitive was to be a computer programmer because at that stage a cheap computer was about to 10 15 million dollars or something like that and i'd never even seen one okay let alone done anything on it and so I thought okay intuitively that's what i wanted to do so i went along and did an aptitude test with a computer company had a very high aptitude and at that stage there was a dearth of people so they took me on board 
trained me up, and that's it. that was where my career went. And if we look at that, and then sort of how did I get involved in overseas aid? Well, I'd made a whole lot of money, and I thought I wanted to give something back. Then I had a friend who worked for World Vision. He just said, oh, why don't you come on a uh, trip with me up to Laos? And at that stage, Laos was a closed country. It had special permits to get in. There were virtually no foreigners there. And it was like going back, because it was one of those countries taken back to, to communism and bare basis. So you could drive from the capital down to Savannah Kep, which in those days was a 10-hour drive, and you would not see one house with one glass window. That's how far it had been taken back. And so we did some projects there on clean water. And it's amazing. We, produce, we reduced the death rate from 18% to 12%, which is some of the highest in the world. Provided, uh, over a few years, provided water to something like 15,000 people and knocked out about a third of the waterborne disease and it was for less than $20 a head. And that's really how I got hooked on overseas aid. Then when I started my foundation up, it was built around experiences of that. And IEP, as we can see that, that was just a simple question walking through the Congo. So I think quite often the things which shape us and make us best in life just come from this natural flow. And I guess it's going to Huntington Beach and surfing, isn't it? You're following your natural flow and desire. And the other things will arise around it. Yeah. Well, be, being a surfer and a family man, I'm going to have to get some advice from you later on our, our adventure cabins, our, our real estate fund. We're trying to do tiny house adventure cabins near ski resorts and surfing beaches and stuff and, and attract people like you to want to come stay at them. So I'm going to, I'm going to get some advice from you later. Oh, great. Okay. Can give us a look at the prospectus. Maybe I'll invest. <laughs> I love it. Well, when you think about how meaningful it is to do things that, that change other people's lives for the positive, I mean, the media and so many things tell us, get stuff for yourselves, get a fancier car, get a bigger house. And then the people who can buy whatever they want end up telling you like the most rewarding things in life are, are stuff with their family and helping other people instead of helping themselves. Do you have any ideas on how we could help people catch that bug earlier? Yeah, it's, look, it's difficult. Look, so I think the, gee, I guess the first thing is that, look, what, what, what I find is if you're thinking about other people, you stop thinking about yourself. Most of the time when we're thinking about ourselves, we're thinking about what do we want what we haven't got, you know what I mean? And so, so quite often it can be negative. And so when you're interacting with family and you're, 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 you're helping others, your mind moves out and it sort of, in some ways it opens the heart. And so I think quite often within the world we live in at the moment, which is bombarded with messages about mainly material messages and don't get me wrong, I think money's really important. Like I drive a Porsche, for example, top line Porsche, because I like cars and sort of be have expensive holidays and that kind of stuff. So there's nothing wrong with money, but we get too obsessed with it. And so look, one of, one of the things I think for sort of opening all that up, I do a lot of meditation. So I started that when I was about 25 and I do a, probably a couple of hours a day. And that's included, that's built in with the uh, 60, 60, 80 hour working week. And so we, so things like that, it's a, it's a, like 
church, get in, if you've got a church, like a lot of churches are really good in terms of the community they build out, out from. I think sort of the, uh, just realising that the, uh, how can I put it, we've got little control over our lives. We may think we have, but in many ways we haven't. Like that can be in terms of the uh, uh, recessions, they hit us. Like if you're in the Ukraine, look what's happened with the war there. Health issues, people can get health issues really young. Even with the best diet in the world, you can still end up with health issues young. You can end up going for the company you think's the great company and you get a CEO in who takes it in the wrong direction. The next minute you're uh, you're the career you thought you had is no longer there. Uh, so, so I think, yeah, so in many ways, sort of just realising the fragility of everything around and the impermanence of it brings us back to the things which matter and their connections, I think, with other people. So it's not much of an answer, Jess, but it's the best I can do. I love it. Well, listen, I know you you speak to really prestigious audiences and you get interviewed on shows much fancier than this one, but I, I'm interested, what's a question that you don't get asked enough? Well, that's a good one. I never had that question before. What if don't get asked enough? You've stumped me in a way, but I guess... Uh, <laughs> I guess sort of people don't... Uh, 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 ask enough about the uh, things which are politically incorrect okay we're living in a world now where it's becoming uh, we're becoming uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. how can i put it uh, yeah. we've got to be a lot uh, more careful about what we say even when we don't think it's the right thing to say so i've never had anyone ask me well and probably better not to ask me the question, but people never said to me, well, Steve, what's something which is outrageously politically incorrect which you believe in? But I don't think you should ask me. Yeah, do you... Okay, okay. But do you think that it it can be harmful to self-censor self so much, right? And we... Like, in some ways, important issues get glossed over because... Everybody's worried about getting cancelled or everybody's worried about, you know, having people who don't know any of the context pile on top and ruin your reputation. And, and unfortunately, it is, a, to me, it feels like a big barrier to dealing with some of the tough issues. Do, do you oh, feel similarly or different? It is. And you, when you have private conversations with people, they'll come up. But in public, uh, uh, public discourse, you you yeah, you've got to be careful. You've got to be careful. And I think what happens is quite often in the... So, so one of the things we haven't touched on is a lot of the global dynamics which are going on. And so what we're getting is a lot more people who are dissatisfied with the state of the society and state of... And there are very, very good reasons for a whole range of different things. And so quite often we've got a big focus on identity now, and it's whether it's the, from a left perspective or a right perspective. And I don't like the words left and right anymore. I don't think they're accurate perspectives. But as you start to look at identity, you end up with in-groups, out-groups, and rights really what you need for cohesive societies is people to be able to seek out what they've got in common 
where are the common overlaps and then work with them rather than where are the divisions and try and convince people the rightness that would be your view on those divisions that that simply without getting too far into stuff that'd be that's one of the things but at a broader more this is quite profound but at a more broader level if we went and this is this is a global phenomenon and you'll see it within the story within australia but it's a global phenomenon in the western democracies so the we went back to the 50s, the, 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 the 20% of people who were with the most education and higher wealth voted conservative. The bottom 20% in terms of education and wealth you voted for Labor parties, more guess in the states, Democrats, places, things, similar sorts of parties. We moved to a 2020 and we find that the top 20% education and wealth now vote the, uh, for the, uh, the Labor parties and similar sorts of things such as the Democrats. The bottom 20% are now voting Conservative. And so there's a profound story in that is, is switch because the traditional people who supported the working class aren't there anymore. And they're certainly not going to get it from the, uh, the Conservatives. So what you've got, and, which is, and we can see it expressed in terms of poorer working conditions, a, a, a higher levels of homelessness, we can see it in eroding social security nets, you can see it in a, a, people trapped in jobs they don't like, with, and, and we can see that the real wages are, are eroding in most of the Western democracies as well. Now this creates a, a, an anger within people and people now starting to look for alternatives and they start to look for a, a more and more radical alternatives the less the system seems to work for them and that would explain let's say the rise of Marie Le Pen uh, which we're seeing currently happen in, uh, in uh, France with exit fits in under that like how do you radically change the system so I feel like I'm better off or you can you see it being some of the stuff down in the States as well. Yeah, I think, well, I was really encouraged. Uh, I loved your story, I believe it was in the Congo, about that woman whose name was Utopia, where you helped her start a shop, you know? I, one of my mentors who spent a couple of years on a service mission in Ghana, Africa, said that entrepreneurship, he felt like was the strongest thing that could help there because they had some schools that were that were producing a lot of graduates for the first time, but there was no jobs for them. And instead, empowering people how to invent their own jobs, he felt like was just such the cure. And I really, I really saw the logic in that. Yeah, look, one of the things when you're looking in to the one of the things which really amazes me, and we'll just talk Africa here, is just the number of entrepreneurs there, but they've got nothing. They've, they've just they're, they're entrepreneurial in, in, in the extreme, many of them, and they just need small amounts of capital to get going. When we look at the all the overseas developmental aid organisations, they're just not structured for, cap, for for that capital. So you've got a lot of money going into into women with uh, micro loans, hundred five hundred dollar loans, which are, can quite often be really quite successful, but there's no money going into the let's say the five that like the five thousand dollar to maybe fifty thousand dollar type investment 
small entrepreneur has already got going, getting something working but really needs the money to scale. And that's because a lot of the big overseas aid organisations, when they're looking at whom to invest in, the amount of the work they've got to do for a $5,000 loan is the same as what they've got to do for a $5 million loan. And so the overheads then become burdensome and unproductive. So the money goes in the bigger things, which means you've got this whole network of the entrepreneurs out there who have starved of capital. And I think sort of in terms of the reshaping the continent of Africa, if we could just get money into those entrepreneurs at that level, then it'd go, some, it'd go, a, long, go a long, long way. Yeah, I love it. Well, we didn't even get to talk about your your private equity investments you're making. There's so many more things we could have talked about. We're going to have to have you back on the show. Love to come back. Well, listen, I want to be respectful of your time here. What? Let's do this one more time. Tell people the best places to, to find out more about your work and to find out about your book. Right. So look, what I'd suggest, if you want to find out more, visionofhumanity.org. I just look that up, go to that, just do a search on the Global Peace Index, Global Terrorism Index, that'll get you there. One of the things we haven't covered is the concept of systems, and that's a radically different way of understanding how societies operate, but I think it's one of the most profound game changes. Peace in the Age of Chaos goes through that, along with the entrepreneurial story, and you'll be able to get that of any of the major places where you buy books. So just Peace in the Age of Chaos, search it, you get it off Book Utopia, Amazon, or off our, our website, which is called Peace in the Age of Chaos. Okay, I think that's about it. Oh, that's so great. Maybe, maybe to leave, you could tell us either, you can pick, either advice you would go back and give a younger version of yourself, or maybe one of the best pieces of advice you ever received. But why don't you decide? Okay. The best, look, I think, yeah, some of the best pieces of advice I've been given are all about following, yeah, following yourself, okay, and not being distracted by what other people say and think you should do. In getting, being in contact with yourself, I think probably the best piece of advice is understand yourself. If you've got a basic understanding yourself and you don't have to have the understanding yourself like a you, 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 some you, you, like some sage or something like that uh, you've just got basic understanding of yourself you'll understand where you need to go and so my best advice is contact contact yourself be a little bit of an introvert you can be an extrovert when you speak but a bit of an introvert when you're sort of looking at yourself and i guess the other piece of advice is this is something I've learned again and again and again. As it's so easy to misinterpret people. And I'll get, just give a one quick story on this. There was this guy who was met in Washington on one of my very first trips of the Global Peace Index. And uh, he, he's one of the leaders in the peace field. So you wouldn't believe it, two days later, three days later, I've come back from a, you know, one day somewhere else and he's at the airport at the luggage rack. Go up to talk to him and he totally ignores me. And I think, wow. What a rude man. So anyway, for the next five years, spoke to people, I said, ah, oh, no, I don't think much of him for such a, he's just pretty pretty arrogant, hasn't got much time for anyone other than those who are successful. 
in, in this particular area. But anyway, we both ended up in Bologna in a, a, a Italy to talk at a, a, a conference. He spoke for the first half of the day, I spoke for the second half. We went out and sort of uh, drunk some limoncello that night, okay? We got on like a house on fire. What had happened, he was deaf in one ear. I'd gone up at the airport and spoken to him in his deaf ear. Right. So, <laughs> lessons don't judge too much. <laughs> <laughs> you can't even make up a story like that. That's so perfect. You know, your, your advice of getting in touch with yourself and like not being so worried about what everyone else thinks, it's funny. This echoes so much the exact advice I got a week ago on this show. Chet Kapoor, he, he built a tech company and sold it to Google for $625 million. And that was literally his advice. He said, like, what he thought the two biggest pieces of advice were is, one, lead with your heart, lead from the heart, lead other people from their heart, and two, like, really be yourself. Like, don't quit trying to be whoever, who you think other people want you to be and actually just be yourself. And it sounds so simplistic, and yet it's such a struggle for most of us. And anyways, it was fun to hear hear such similar advice from from someone else so successful oh that's great okay so i guess we're similar sorts of guys in some shape and way yeah that's great okay everyone thanks so much for listening steve thanks again for doing this uh, my pleasure Jess. okay great